This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splained. We sometimes look at concepts like evolution as being inevitable, the wheels of change. But as our understanding of the natural world evolves, so does our understanding of the processes fueling evolutionary change. One man who is in dire need of evolutionary intervention is the Matt Splainer himself, Matt Armitage. Matt, don't you think we've evolved enough? Hey, Richard. Well, you know, I'm pretty much the peak of human evolution. You know, it's, it's pretty much all downhill from me. <laughs> And it's one of the reasons that I don't have children, uh, that in the UN Child Slavery Court order, uh, because, you know, why breed something that's going to be inferior to me? It wouldn't be fair. I'd be setting that child up for a lifetime of traumatic experiences. Well, I mean, the trauma part is true, uh, but... Why is evolution back on uh, MSP's table this week? Well, evolution works in very strange ways. You know, sometimes we see those jumps in places that we don't expect, such as in 90-something-year-old white males. Mm. So, as I'm sure has already been widely reported on BFM, the British natural historian David Attenborough joined Instagram in late September, and he broke a bunch of records in the process. He smashed... Jennifer Aniston's record of being the fastest to achieve one million followers. Uh, And at the time we're recording this, I think he's got close to five and a half million followers. Mm. Now, obviously, that's still a little bit short of the 270 something million that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo has. But, you know, who's counting? That sounds more like a sneaky way to talk about David Attenborough, though, than uh, any actual link to our topic, which is supposed to be evolution. Well, that shows how unevolved you are, because uh, Attenborough announced his latest movie, Life on Our Planet, Mm. on a streaming platform at the beginning of October. Uh, I have to admit, I haven't watched it yet, so it only came out a day or so before I prepared this show. One of his purposes for making the movie and for being present on social media is to reach out to younger generations and make the case for the looming climate calamity that the planet is heading towards. And part of what we're going to cover in this episode in terms of evolution is understanding or getting to that understanding of how these processes work and how that may help us to reverse some of the damage uh, that we've done and perhaps even change course. So, Does that give me enough reason to talk about David Attenborough a bit more? Well, I mean, you wrote the questions. I'm just a robot. I did see the documentary. He's a national hero. Knock yourself out. Well, so, of course, he's using Instagram to promote the movie. And he isn't managing the account himself. So I wouldn't expect to see him selling, you know, magic bracelets on the account. (laughs) Although if it does turn out that he's a sneaker freak or he has a passion for ambient sludge metal... That's going to be really awesome. Uh, He's been pretty active so far, and the direction of the content has been pretty clever. Uh, One of the things I saw was a roundtable Zoom-type interview with uh, stars and celebs like David Beckham and Billie Eilish. Mm. So there's, you know, something for everyone in that kind of generational sense. I'm still not sure how this ties into evolution, uh, but can social media result in, in real change? Well, a lot of people view social media as being ineffectual, certainly in terms of direct action. And this is where it ties back to evolution, 
So thank you very much. <laughs> uh, this is the communication medium of our time. You know, it is the newspapers and magazines. It is the radio and the TV of our era. Mm. And that's one of the things that Attenborough mentions himself. He's a product of that world of TV, radio and print. Mm. But if he stays on those media, then the people who can really do something and bring about those changes won't be the people that he's talking to. Mm. And as to that point about real change, well, we've seen it happen. We've seen decentralized protest movements coalescing around social media pages. Uh, Kim Kardashian used her celebrity to push Trump into an executive order for prison reform. I think that was last year. And of course, the England team uh, footballer Marcus Rashford forced the British government into a U-turn over the provision of free school lunches uh, using his social media account. Mm. And we also know that the reverse is the case. So governments and companies are using information or disinformation to try and nudge your behaviour towards their chosen opinions. So is that enough evolution for you? Um, it'll do, uh, but I'd rather have something scientific. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start with an algorithm. Is that Matt Splendy enough? Uh, incidentally, a lot of the background for this show comes from a New Scientist article titled Evolution is Evolving. Now, there are 13 theories they outline. We're not going to get through all of those. I've cherry-picked them, uh, like this AI example. And we've talked about artificial intelligence a lot over the last few shows, uh, with a particular focus on systems that can learn and adapt. And that growing knowledge about machine learning and how that knowledge develops and is structured is also allowing us to look at evolutionary processes in the natural world. So we're looking at parallels rather than simulations. Hang on. Are we saying that evolution is intelligent? Yeah, but in the same way that machines are intelligent. So mm. that's why the uh, computer analogies are significant, because it allows us to break away from that mode of thinking where we link intelligence to sentience and ultimately back to humans. So it gives us the perspective to allow for other forms of intelligence than our own. A team at Southampton University is looking at uh, inductive learning as a model. So the way that humans learn, it's not just a linear A plus B equals C type procedure. Right. Our brains can draw on previous information and experiences to create solutions to novel problems that we might face. And they do this by analysing the building blocks of previous problems and the solutions we came up with and constructing likely outcomes that might fit those situations. Some artificial intelligence systems do a, a similar thing. You know, it's part of what allows them to be adaptable uh, to, to new situations. And do genes demonstrate this ability to use inductive learning? Well, that's the thing, yeah. You know, that idea of natural selection that uh, promotes the apparently best gene has parallels to machine learning. Right. In the same way that uh, the neurons in our brains are networked, so are genes. In computer simulations, the Southampton team found that genes use a similar reinforcement method uh, to the method our brains use. So when we devise a good outcome, we use it over and over, and that helps to reinforce it. Mm. Something similar happens amongst genes, which the guys in Southampton reckon is pretty similar. So oddly enough, one of the reasons for this is actually energy efficiency. Genes are connected by proteins, and that process requires the burning of energy. 
the less energy, the more efficient. So networks with fewer connections and better links to other networks tend to lead to better outcomes. So that evolution essentially has its own distributed machine learning model. The idea of that knowledge being community-based, doesn't that challenge the idea of natural selection, though? Well, that's one of the reasons that this is so radical. The head of the team at Southampton, Dr. Richard Watson, acknowledges exactly what you just said. Mm. Natural selection favours the individual, whereas inductive learning favours societies and communities. And that's one of the big takeouts of the research and why, if it's true, it is an evolution of our thinking about evolution. Because, as Watson puts it, maybe evolution is less about out-competing others and more to do with co-creating knowledge. So what we're essentially talking about today is plasticity, that our genes contain more potential for flexibility than we assume. Well, that's why the parallel with our brains in that first example was uh, an apt one, because we describe our own brains and learning processes as being plastic. You know, we have that saying... You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, the old dog that can't figure out what channel to put the TV on to get Netflix is suddenly a genius when it comes to sending gifts of uh, old cowboy movies where men were men or spewing hate at famous women on Twitter. Mm. You know, it's less about the trick. It's more about whether the dog is motivated to do something new. Mm. And the more we see flexibility in existing species, the more we understand that adaptability might be as or even more important uh, in terms of a characteristics than mutation. All right. Um, so we're coming up to a break, Matt, and, and it's around lunchtime. And of course, my own experience suggests that something unpalatable uh, is about to be dished up. Exactly. And that proves that you're adapting. Mm. Uh, Mexican spadefoot toads, nice little chaps, very cuddly. Uh, their normal diet is algae and bacteria, which is probably what most of our listeners are off to eat. But like pandas and bamboo, it's not the easiest food to get nutrients from. So if the tadpoles develop in a pond where there are fairy shrimps, which of course are a lot tastier and more nutritious, then those tadpoles adapt. The toads they develop into will have larger jaws, they'll have shorter guts. And Nicola Lewis at the University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill has found that there are actually 14 genes involved in making this switch. And we're finding similar, if simpler, mechanisms in other creatures. Some oyster species may use epigenetic tags that can be switched on or off, allowing them to live in beds with lower salinity levels. So plasticity may be this key. Mm. When we talk about mutation in a gene, it may be new, but it's actually something that's fixed. So it may well be that the evolution that brought fish out of the sea and onto land and eventually turned them into us may have involved elements of this plastic adaptability as well as the mutations that cemented these adaptations as permanent changes. When we come back, can we shape evolution? And more importantly, can we reverse it? You're listening to Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9. Beyond Frivolous Mishmash, BFM 
BFM 89.9, the business station. Welcome to Matt Splained. And Matt Splained is indeed evolving today. Not in any useful way, uh, but it's been mildly informative so far. In the same way that we see rapid learning and change in machine intelligence, Matt, do we understand how long these changes take in natural species? Well, we tend to think of evolution as changes that occur over thousands, if not millions of years. One of the biggest comments uh, that's thrown back at digital technology and AI is that we're adopting solutions and ideas that are evolving much faster than we can change to accommodate them. And there's already evidence that the brains of uh, a generation brought up with digital devices are slightly different to old crusty ones like mine. And that's another example of this plasticity at work. I'm glad you didn't say ours. Um, haven't you argued that we may be heading towards a man-made evolutionary jump? Yeah, and this is something we've discussed on the show before about uh, enhanced and uh, what I call classic humans yeah. uh, and a convergence of humans and machines. Machines with uh, human characteristics and people with machine characteristics. So we see this kind of blending. Now, that might be brain implants, artificial limbs and organs. But one of the easiest ways, on paper at least, to avoid the effects of aging is to replace the bits that age. Mm. Now, that kind of evolution, once it starts, could be very rapid indeed because it is a technology-induced jump. Right. So you could be upgrading yourself every year in the same way that you buy a new phone. But even in terms of natural evolution, it's sometimes faster than we think. Uh, the new scientist uses the examples of finch species in the Galapagos that developed larger beaks in just a few generations. This has enabled them to eat uh, larger seeds. But then uh, when smaller seeds became more plentiful and the larger seeds became less plentiful, they evolved smaller beaks again. Right. But a more useful example for us might be the killifish in the US, which has been evolving over the last 50 years to cope with higher water pollution levels. Now, that's something that more species in the natural world, unfortunately, may be in need of before we can either bring climate change under control or we see it plateau at some new level of normal. Now, if we are capable of creating a new species in the form of machine intelligence and effectively blending with that new species through deliberate or medical intervention, does it challenge the idea of species in general? Well, this is another one of those discussions that I guess has biologists flinging cocktail olives at each other at conferences <laughs> uh, or at their monitor screens, I guess now, because they're all virtual conferences. But you wonder what evolutionary differences that uh, continued COVID lockdowns might bring about mm. you know we might evolve more efficient club-like feet to help us propel swivel chairs with more accuracy <laughs> we might develop wider bottoms for all that sitting down or maybe we'll just evolve to have no legs at all above all i think we'll uh, develop the ability to digest crisps with no apparent health risks but going back to that species question you know it is a funny one uh, if we accept that we evolved from something else then are species more of a blurring and a reimagining rather than a distinction. Are we getting closer to or further away from a clarification? Well, you'd have thought that gene sequencing would have made it all easier. You know, you're in this box and you're in that box. And that's often how people view science, you know, in these black and white terms. 
Unfortunately, science has this annoying habit of pushing the boundaries. Sometimes it renders everything you've studied or think you know as irrelevant. But increasingly, it just shows you that the jigsaw you were working on is actually much larger than you imagine. Right. And what you thought was completing the puzzle turns out to barely constitute a tile. And gene sequencing has done that as well. It demonstrates that those linkages, that interbreeding, is common wherever you look at life on our planet. And as we've heard in recent weeks, people with Neanderthal genes could be at a greater risk of complications with the coronavirus. So just think about that for a second. Yeah. Descendants of yours from the human and Neanderthal species or subspecies interbred thousands of years ago. And that genetic history puts you at greater risk of a specific and novel illness in today's world. So that shows you how complicated evolution is. Um, you mentioned the interbreeding. Are we the only species that is shaping its own evolution? No. And, you know, even for us, this isn't a new development. Uh, the new scientist notes that farming, and yes, we're back to the development of agriculture again, mm. uh, farming promoted an evolutionary change. We changed the landscape. We are still changing the landscape to create farmland and space for human habitation. Our diet changed. We developed digestive enzymes that help us break down carbohydrates and uh, milk from animals. Uh, all of those things that would have formed a very small part of a hunter-gatherer's diet. Lots of other animals also shape their environment to greater or lesser degrees. Termites build complex mounds, birds build nests, and beavers build dams that can alter the flow and shape of rivers and the surrounding land. How much this process, uh, it's called niche construction, has affected or influenced evolution is contested. It's another one of those topics that has... Uh, academics ducking olives at conferences. Bringing this back to David Attenborough, how can this knowledge help us to confront some of the problems that the world is, is, is facing right now? Well, a bit cheeky considering you didn't want me to talk about Attenborough in the first place, <laughs> but uh, one of the uh, areas that we don't think of being classically evolution-related is uh, the area of bacteria and diseases. Now, these are organisms that evolve and mutate very, very quickly. One of the problems with developing a coronavirus vaccine is that we don't know how effective it will be or for how long it will provide any kind of protection or coverage. Uh, I think we covered this in a previous show, but the common cold isn't the common cold. When you get a cold, you've actually got one of over 100 distinct viruses. With flus, there are fewer strains. But when you get your flu jab every year, you're generally being immunised against a different strain. So being able to halt evolution is essential if we're going to win the battle against all sorts of diseases. Like these antibiotic super drug, that superbugs we're hearing about. Yeah, so this time last year, my wife contracted a strain of typhoid that was antibiotic resistant. While she was in hospital uh, receiving treatment on a drip, it stayed under control. But as soon as they took her off the antibiotics, it roared back. Thankfully, they eventually found one that she, or rather the infection, responded to. Because if not, they'd have had to use one of the really powerful ones that come with significant side effects and potential long-term damage. But that's the future we face without antibiotics, you know, dying from a simple cut on your hand. A hundred years of medical progress, you know, rolled back. And there are other forms of resistance too. Uh, rats and insects that develop a tolerance to poisons. 
uh, plant diseases that could uh, decimate staples like wheat, rice and maize and threaten our ability to feed the world. And as the new scientist points out, and we don't like to think about, cancer, in a sense, is an evolution of our own cells. Right. Um, So which battles can we win? Well, it's a good question. You know, sometimes it's just common sense. Uh, Some uh, agrochemical companies are now mixing strains of seeds that uh, produce insecticides with an ordinary variant. That ensures that it's not just resistant generations of the pests that survive. So there are still enough of them interbreeding that total resistance doesn't spread throughout the whole population. Another approach is uh, the all-out assault. Treatments for conditions like HIV employ combination therapies, attacking the virus from multiple directions and overwhelming it into uh, submission or inactivity, which is a bit like that scene in Game of Thrones when Ramsay Bolton's forces have Jon Snow contained. Hey, Jon Snow won that fight. Well, yes, because he had his own combination therapy show up, which was yeah, anyway, you've broken my analogy. <laughs> I was going to say that Jon Snow was rescued by Littlefinger and the Knights of the Vale, ah. uh, who in the analogy represent CRISPR, which is the latest tool in our fight to beat back evolution's evil game, which I do find slightly ironic. A lot of people view CRISPR as part of the technology gone wrong culture of our world, that we're creating things that shouldn't exist. Whereas in many cases, we're actually using gene modification to fight progress and actually hold back time. So rather than develop new antibiotics, we could edit out the genes that create antibiotic resistance. Now, um, how, how would you go about delivering that? Well, I didn't say holding back time wasn't scary. Now, one way is to use a carrier virus equipped with that specific programming of CRISPR that would attack the bacteria in the host. I know this is, you know, the, exactly how every zombie plague starts in every movie. Yep. It's the classic plot twist. But this is where we are. We're hiding indoors from the coronavirus and we're looking at modified viruses carrying edited genes to save us. According to New Scientist, an Israeli biotech company called Trobix Bio is working on a CRISPR-equipped pill that would target gut bacteria and combat a range of hospital-acquired superbugs. Some researchers are going even further by trying to engineer the perfect bacteria. Now, is that as dangerous as it sounds? Well, I don't know how dangerous it sounds to you. You know, if you're one of those, oh, I've got a paper cut, I'm going to die, then yes, obviously it's dangerous. (laughs) If you're a gravity biker, then probably not so scary. But Generally, no, it shouldn't be too terrifying. Uh, All these uh, pathogens want to refine themselves, so it's the imperfections that prompt them to mutate. Jeffrey Parrick at the University of Texas at Austin is working with E. coli bacteria to tweak the proteins that replicate the DNA and ensure that there are fewer mistakes in the copies. The hope is that this kind of intervention will result in fewer mutations and it could actually slow the pace of that evolution. So bringing it all full circle, even if we can't reverse the effects of climate change, we might have a shot at tweaking ourselves and a sufficient quantity of plants and animals to be able to survive until some kind of equilibrium is achieved. And if you've ever seen the movie uh, Evolution, well... To survive, we've basically got to do the opposite of everything that happens in that movie. Mm. And echoing David Attenborough, 
Not doing anything is not an option, no matter how unpalatable the options we have left. You've been listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9. If you missed this show or any other MSPs, you can head over to culturepop.com and have a listen there. Of course, you can also download the podcasts via our app, which is available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.